things going here. I was thinking of a story last night that I really haven't pondered in about 35 years. Um, it's partially because, you know, when you got teenagers that are getting close to graduating, you think about stuff like this. But really, this has nothing to do with them. Uh, it has to do with the topic today. Um, I'm going to be talking about righteousness. And so in regards to righteousness, I tell you the story. When I was a senior in high school, 35 years ago, 36 years ago, all right, when I was a senior in high school, uh, my brother Steve went to college with a guy that became a rather famous musician and played in a particular band that those of us from the 80s would probably be familiar with. Uh, you might have heard of a band called Shooting Star, maybe, maybe not. Well, they uh, had made three or four albums, albums, CDs, whatever, and they uh, did the soundtrack for several movies that had come out from Hollywood, Uh, but they were kind of a big deal. But my senior year in high school, Six Flags always did this big senior night, and so there was a concert that they had planned, and Shooting Star was the chosen band to highlight the Six Flags thing. Thousands of teenagers all over uh, the state of Missouri were there. But here's the cool thing. Because I had connections, uh, Charles Waltz, who was the violinist and the keyboardist in the band, uh, made arrangements for me to have a backstage pass and to get into the concert free, get into Six Flags free. And so I get to go, and, and believe it or not, I couldn't find any friends to go with me because nobody believed it. Nobody. And so I literally had to drive an hour and a half from Farmington, Missouri, to Six Flags to go to this concert and then drive myself back because nobody believed me. And so when I got there, I'm like, Charles, uh, sorry, buddy, I have no friends because nobody uh, believed me. So he says, I'll take care of that. During the concert, he stopped things to recognize the seniors, and he called me out on the stage as his friend. And then the people who knew me from high school, they're you know, jaws dropped, right? It was, a cool, it was a cool victory for me that day, but not that that was important, right? But here's the thing. What does that have to do with righteousness? What it has to do with is this. Righteousness, the concept that continually overwhelms me, is the thought that because of my sinfulness... I will never have access to God because nothing sinful, nothing evil, nothing defiled can enter into his presence and live. The only way that we can come to the Father is if Jesus himself clothes us in his righteousness and gives us a backstage pass into the presence of God. And it's by his righteousness that we now can boldly and confidently walk into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of our God, and actually have relationship with him. That to me is amazing. That's one of the most amazing parts of being a child of God, of being a believer, a Christian in this world. And so in regards to righteousness, I want to set some things straight. There's, there's all kinds of conflicting information. Uh, 493 verses in the Bible talk about righteous or righteousness. 
This is a huge topic. And if you take it from the beginning of the Old Testament, you go all the way through the New Testament, you're going to find a plethora of ideologies and concepts that seem to contradict each other. So we're going to try to just keep it simple and keep it sane and get you through the process so that you can have a working understanding of what righteousness is. The biblical definition of righteousness, which is different from Merriam-Webster to some degree uh, and some of the other uh, current uh, dictionaries, it gives three different definitions. And these pretty much are a summation of all of the Greek in the New Testament understanding of the word. Old Testament's a little bit different. I didn't dig into that as much. But righteousness are these three things. In a broad sense, it is the state of the person who we are supposed to be, who we ought to be, in order to be acceptable to God. Righteousness is this state that we must have in our lives upon us, that we might be part of, so that in our condition we are acceptable to God. The second one is this. It's a doctrine concerning the way in which man may attain a state of approval by God. So it is a way, a methodology by which we find acceptance to God. Certain descriptive words with that would be integrity, for example, virtue, purity, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. So all of these things grouped together. The third definition is, in a narrow sense, justice or the virtue which gives each his due. Now, with all of that said, I'm going to guide you a little bit through Old Testament because this is some things that that we probably will think about if we really give uh, God time to work on us. The first one that I think of when it comes to righteousness is Noah. Sorry, not you. Um, But you're close. You're you're right there. Um, But in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we get a description of the type of person Noah was and why God entrusted to him the task of building the ark to save humanity. And it says in in those verses in chapter 6 of Genesis, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Now, understand, righteousness is always seen as a contrast to wickedness. Righteousness, wickedness, really no in-between when we get to the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, there's some gray space. But the Lord has saw how wicked man had become on earth. And this is... uh, This is descriptive of the type of wickedness that man had at that time. And I'll tell you, the prophetic verses that talk about the times when Christ returns is very similar in description. It says that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination in the heart of man was evil all the time. That was wickedness. And with that as a backdrop, in contrast, it says that Noah was called by God, who was a righteous man, who was blameless among all the people of his time, and that he walked with God. So what I do is I go through and I highlight the attributes that set him apart from wickedness. Those attributes are blameless, righteous, walked with God. Now, Before we start promoting Noah to the place of of, uh, messiahhood, 
we have to understand that this is in a context that we have to grasp. He was blameless among the people of his time. So in comparison to those who he bumped shoulders with at the marketplace, he was ahead above them. He was blameless among them. In comparison to them, he was the best. He was, he was the only one that really stood out to God, and God favored him as a result. Then we go to the book of Job, and we look at Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Remember, Satan said, I'm going around accusing people, going from east to west, accusing people. That's what Satan does. He, he tempts you, he trips you, and then he blames you. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth who is like him. He is blameless. He is upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Again, the same context as with Noah, among his peers, among the people that he rubbed shoulders with, he was blameless. There was no one else on earth who was like him. He was different. That doesn't mean he was absolutely perfect and and spiritually um, without blemish. It just means that in comparison to the others, he was blameless, he was upright, He feared God and he shunned evil. So really, if we stop right there and we say, okay, so this is what righteousness is, is these attributes. How many of us could say with with confidence, I am righteous? Because, and this would be the description, that you're righteous, blameless, you walk with God, you fear God, and you shun evil. Right? So we'd say, well, I'm not too far off. And among my peers, I might be okay. You know, if you have a very small peer pool, right? But it doesn't stop there. We also need to note that Job became, as a result of his doings, of his spirituality, his piety, as a result, he became filled with self-righteousness. So if you're going to uh, set your hearts on becoming righteous one day, you're setting yourself up to fail. You're setting a standard that's going to lead you into a new form of sinfulness called self-righteousness. In in chapter 12, verse 4 of Job, he says this, I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. These are his own words. You probably pray that prayer a lot, don't you? Even though I'm righteous and blameless, God answered my prayer, and yet I still suffer. In Job 32, verse 1, a little bit more clarity, he says, These three men, his friends, they stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. This is something we don't want to set our hearts on. We don't want to ascribe to. We don't want to become righteous among our peers because then we will become self-righteous in our condemnation of ourselves. Next, I take you to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and we talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist. Both of them were in the lineage of John the Baptist in the holiness. Uh, They were both priests 
and in a, in a really royal priesthood lineage as well. And in Luke 1, 5 through 6, it says, Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and re- regulations blamelessly. Now, this is different. we got a twist now that we're in the New Testament. Not that this pertains to the New Testament, but it just happens to be a twist in the New Testament. It says that both of them were upright, meaning that they didn't sin, they didn't get off of the right path, they stayed on the true path, and it says that they observed all of the Lord's commandments. Every commandment, they obeyed it. And every regulation, they obeyed it blamelessly. But look what it says. They were upright, not among their peers, but in the sight of God, they were blameless. Big twist right there, right? If there's anything that you could ascribe to, I would say this. Don't try to be righteous in the sight of your peers, but try to be righteous in the eyes of God. That would be a noble aspiration. In Acts chapter 10, and this is the last one before we really get into the text. I'm just trying to set the foundation here. In Acts chapter 10, did I just lose power? Okay. In Acts chapter 10, it says, Cornelius, who was a centurion of Rome, in in verses 1 through 3, it says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. In other words, he was a pagan Gentile. He was not a believer in the Jewish tradition, and that's all we have as a reference point at this point. Just now, the, the Christianity movement is taking taking place, but he was still outside of that realm of uh, responsibility. It says about him, he and all of his family, the whole shebang, were devout, they were God-fearing, bless you, and he gave generously to those who were in need, and he prayed to God regularly. It doesn't say daily, but regularly he prayed to God. And in verse 22, when his servants are talking about him, they say this about their master. We come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all of the Jewish people. This is a huge commendation. I would even go so far as to say it's more valuable to receive compliments from others than it is to hear them from our own lips. A a phrase my band director used to always say, um, it's better to hear somebody else toot your horn than for you to toot your own. Toot your own. Does that make sense? We got a lot of personal horn tutors, I know, in this world. But it's rather impressive when somebody else, especially when your enemies are tooting your horn. With all of that said, we go to Romans chapter 3. To again set another level of foundation here to this concept of righteousness. In Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, it says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. All right, now here's the description of all of us who have ever walked the face of the earth. This is our character uh, being displayed. There is no one righteous, not even one, nobody. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. 
Every one of us have turned away and have together become worthless. But there is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Isn't that a really uplifting and encouraging word from the, from the Bible? We are wretched people. He'll even go so far into chapter 3, verse uh, 23. Is it 323? Um, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Yep, there it is right there. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one then has access to God the Father because of our filthiness. Because of the sin in which we're born into and that we maintain throughout our lives, we cannot access God. So, we go to Romans 6, the passage I read for today. And now Paul is establishing a contrast between wickedness and righteousness and how this plays out in our daily lives. He says in 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This really is the crux of everything that we hold dear as Christians. But yet, it's also the same thing that we stumble over and we don't adequately embrace. Many, many times I have baptized people myself and and have instructed people that when it comes to sharing your testimony, there should be three components. What you were like before you found Christ and were baptized, what the events that came into your life, what people came into your life to bring you to a place of salvation in Christ, to help you to embrace that, and what is your life like now? How is your life different than it was before Christ? Does that make sense? So what did you used to be like? What happened? And how are you different now? And if number three is not different from number one, then number two has some flaws in it. In other words, when you were a, a drunk and, and an idolater and, and were lazy and wretched and pathetic, Christ came into your life and radically transformed you mentally and physically and spiritually. And now you're a new creation, but... People that know you say, well, they're still wretched. They're still drunks. They're still idolaters. They're still fools. I don't see any difference in them. Now we have a problem. And we see this all the time. I see it all the time. And I was one of those examples at one time. So how do we make sense of this? And how do we fix the problem so that people adequately understand what's going on in their lives and how to reverse this trend if it could be classified as a trend? The first thing is this, is that we have to understand that baptism is a baptism of repentance. John the the baptizer said, repent and believe. And so people came from the hills to the Jordan River, repenting of their sins. He baptized them. And so repentance is the way of saying, I don't want to be like this anymore. 
Confession is, I'm a sinner. Confession is, these are my sins. Repentance is, I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to change, and I need help. And so John baptized them, and in the baptism scenario, this is what happened. When they put you under the water, you die to the old self. The old self, the flesh, has now been crucified with Christ. And if we have to hold you underwater for a couple days, then so be it. But the goal is to get all that sin and all that crud and all that wrong thinking out of your system, right? Because you're dying to your old self. You don't have those habits anymore. You don't have those sins. You don't have those same creepy characteristics anymore. You have died to the old self. And then when we pull you up out of the water, assuming that we've done an adequate job of letting the water cleanse you, then you are a new creation in Christ. And now you are sharing in his resurrection. You died to the old. Now you're being raised up to a new person. You don't do those same things anymore. You don't talk the same way or behave the same way because you are a new creation. And that's what he's saying here in Romans 6. He says, uh, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Sin has been crucified. But, he says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Now, remember, this word, I I entitled this message, what did I call it? The offering, because this makes sense to me. An offering is something that is offered. Isn't that great? I came up with that myself. (laughs) An An offering is something that you offer, which means this to me. An offering is voluntary. An offering is something that is not mandatory, but something I choose to give. And what's he talking about here? Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. In other words, offering is also a choice. And if you want to continue to sin or be engaged in sin after your baptism, after your death and resurrection in Christ, then you have to understand this is a choice. You're choosing to offer parts of your body to the sinful act that you're indulging in. Now, remember, this is a choice. You don't have to do it anymore. Before baptism, it was not a choice. You were a slave to sin, period. You couldn't control yourself. You couldn't stop yourself. Now it has become a choice. Now, don't misunderstand me. Like we talked about last week with temptation, the devil's still there. And he's still going to try to trip you up. And he can be very persuasive at times. And he's going to try to destroy your life through uh, getting you to do things that you shouldn't be doing. He's going to be very successful at that in some regards. But it's still a choice on your part to listen to him and to give in to that sin or to say, you know what, take a hike, I'm out of here, I'm not doing that because I'm thankful for what God has done for me through his son Jesus to give me this freedom. And I choose not to indulge you today. But he says this. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Again, an offering is an offer. It's a choice. And he's saying that even though you're now a Christian and you're a believer in his kingdom, it's still a choice for you to submit to him and to give him your whole heart 
or parts of your life that you still have a tendency to want to control. It's a choice. He's asking you to choose to give yourself to the submission of God so that he can bring about in you righteousness. This is a very important concept, which we're going to get into in chapter 10 in just a minute, right when you thought I was about done. He says in verse 14, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law anymore, but you're under grace. Sin no longer masters your life, unless you choose to let it master your life. So he goes on in verse 15 and 16. He says, now in 16, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as a slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So your choice has some very serious ramifications to it after the point of your baptism and your new life birth. If you continue to give yourself and offer yourself to the sinfulness, then you're going to, you're basically choosing to become a slave to that old lifestyle again. Or you can choose to give yourself to the Lord, and then you will be led into righteousness. It gets very complicated, doesn't it? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You are slaves to righteousness. This is uh, important because righteousness does not come from within. It comes from without. Righteousness is not something that you create for yourself and then clothe yourself with, but something that God does for us. It's a gift of grace, and it's an act of faith on our behalf. So redemption is amazing. Thank you, Lord. But righteousness, and to some degree, is even cooler because this is where he finishes the act and cleans us up completely and totally. He says in 19, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. To this, I say thank you. I am very weak into my natural self. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them to slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness. Holiness should be our goal. Holiness. I don't want to be righteous. I want to be holy. Because holiness, holy comes from God. And it is a work of his redemption, even after the point of salvation, this continually work bringing me to a place of purity and cleanness and, and just incredibleness. Now, when we get to heaven and we're all in, in there for eternity, we're all going to be clothed in righteousness. We're all going to be holy, perfect, and pure. That's where we're going to be. So why don't we just start the process now of working towards that? Because like I've said several times in the last few weeks, going to heaven is not the reason Jesus died on the cross for us. It's a perk. The reason that he died on the cross is so that heaven can come inside of us here on earth 
so that he can radically change our lives here on earth so that we can go into the world and radically change the lives of others so that we can let his righteousness come through us for the sake of others so that, that through us, others can come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why. But see, here's the other side of that. If he only came to give us a ticket to heaven, then what happens here on earth is just whatever. Whatever you want to do. You go out, sin, get crazy, get ugly with it, whatever you want. It's up to you, you know? Um, You don't have to live for God. You don't need to do anything to please him. Just go out and have fun because, well, this is the Epicurean definition. Epicureanism came at the time after Christ died. And Epicureanism said this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might die. So for today, live it up. Go out and party hardy, because you don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches strive for righteousness, strive for purity, strive for gloriness. Or, I can't talk. Strive for God's glory to shine through us for the sake of others. This is just crazy stuff. But this is why... We come into this relationship to be radically transformed because this world is dying and they need the hope that we can give them. If you would look just for a little bit at Romans chapter 10, this might shed a little bit more light on it. In Romans 10 verses 113 through 13, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read the first few verses. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. It's on tradition. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, they went to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is at the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So he's comparing our situation to that of the Israelites who didn't have this relationship with God. And so they didn't, know, they didn't accept Christ. And so they can't take God's righteousness and apply it to themselves. So what they're doing is they're trying to earn it on themselves. They're trying to create their own level of righteousness. And that is what enables uh, self-righteousness. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. You can't get yourself into heaven. Otherwise, you wouldn't need Christ. You can't get yourself into heaven. Otherwise, you'd be a braggart. No, he wants to keep us humble, keep us pure, keep us close to his son. Jesus is our ticket to holiness, our ticket to righteousness, our ticket to eternal life. And so uh, we have to just accept the righteousness of Christ. Now we don't have to worry about being self-righteous because we didn't do it ourselves. We did it because we just humbly accepted what Christ has already done for us. He goes on through these verses to describe it in greater detail, but I don't think it's, it's important to beat a dead horse any further than it's already dead. Uh, maybe on another day we can do that. Um, so this is what we're up against. I'm out of notes here, so we're good. Um, this is what we're up against, all right? Just to keep this uh, very simplistic. Jesus died on the cross for you to give you eternal life. Most of you have embraced that. You have died to your old selves. You've died to your old sinful habits. You are a new creation. For many of us, 
that continues to be a hang-up because we want to continually go back and relive those moments of the glory years. The Bible refers to it this way, like a dog returning to its vomit. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Great thought. Yeah, so you girls who decide you want to go back and date the old boyfriend again, keep that in mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That should leave a nice little taste in your mouth. But that's the same descriptive terms as it comes to being a Christian, but yet being tempted to go back and living that old lifestyle with your old buddies. Why? Why? Was the vomit that good? No. It wasn't that good. It was disgusting. But God has in store for us so much goodness, so much clarity and purity and blessing. And so instead of trying to earn your spot and trying to to wage war against the old flesh, just accept the death that you've already been through. The scriptures say, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, there can be no life. You have to die to the old self. You have to die. When you die, you all know this. You can't take your your collectibles with you to heaven or, or to the grave. You cannot take your habits to the grave. They all die. You can't take your friends, your children, your spouse. You can't take anything. You go, you go naked. Naked I'm born, naked I shall depart. You can't take anything with you. So the same is true spiritually. When you die spiritually, you must die completely and get rid of the old self. So that number one of your testimony is drastically different than number three of your testimony. Because number three is what brings people to salvation, not point one. And as a refresher, part three is how is your life different now that you have become a full-fledged child of God and a believer in the body of Christ? How are you different now? That's the prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we humbly pray that you will forgive us for holding on to the old self and for not fully dying to the old. We pray that you will convict us, Lord, of the areas of our life that we continue to hold on to and embrace. We pray that you will give us clarity about our past and the transition of baptism and conversion that we have been through. Father, we want to live a life that honors you and glorifies you, and if we're still living in the past, we can't do that. So we pray that you will forgive us, that you will change us, that you will replenish us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Change our hearts, whatever it takes, so that we can start living a life of enjoyment, knowing that the righteousness of Christ is upon us. And now we have access to the Heavenly Father. Lord, we love you and we thank you for doing all of the work that we may have this joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.